0: back uh, this week uh, on Between the Tees. I'm your host, Dennis Walters. Alongside me is David Lutz. Hello. So this week, we finally did it. <laughs> David, we finally did it. Well, we got it to work. We get, Well, that's a true statement. We did get it to work. We got it to save. And we got it to save. Uh, we finally got the interview of uh, Mr. Walters, Dennis Walters, from St. Louis, Missouri. The legendary. Legendary. Uh, just to kind of give you a background before uh, we go into the interview. Uh he is a Gateway PJ Hall of Fame professional.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh he's also in the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. Uh he actually just got inducted into that last year mm-hmm. for the business side of things when it comes to golf. So definitely listen to this uh this interview. It's gonna be amazing. Uh this guy has done so much for golf in general, but also for St. Louis. Uh, putting St. Louis on the map for, for Mm -hmm. golf. He's done uh, quite a few things to help uh, get special events here. Uh, He's done a lot of transformable things Mm -hmm. uh, in our community. So in the metropolitan St. Louis area, he's very humble about it. So he he tends to take credit or give credit to other people when he was really the one that kind of made the forefront on, uh, on the on st louis golf Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously uh the other people helped him tremendously but without his leadership uh st louis golf wouldn't be
1: uh, where it is today well and i also think he you know he's been in the business been around the game most of his life and for a very long time but just because he has been in the game for a very long time doesn't mean he has this you know super old school mentality with the game either he's very open-minded about the things that are changing in the game and how they could be moving going forward to benefit the game as a whole not just benefit the business side of things right 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 and it's uh it's pretty neat because you know a
0: lot of listeners uh even if you listen to other podcasts you don't really get to hear this side of Mm -hmm. the game of golf so it's going to be really neat to uh Hear the interview and uh I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh and here is the uh interview of Mr. Walters.
2: So on the phone with us today is uh Mr. Walters, uh Dennis Walters from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh was, have been in the golf business for over forty years. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great.
3: Uh I am not there but uh I'm there in spirit. So uh I'm in South Florida where the weather's a little better and I'm doing rehab for my back surgery. But uh I'm ready to go. Let's go.
2: Yeah. Let's <laughs> and uh just so everybody knows, uh my father had uh, back fusion surgery in January. Uh smaller version of what kind of Tiger Woods had. Is that correct? Yes, he had a
3: fusion, but he had more uh more uh, done, more and I, I just had my L4 L5 and uh, the the uh, plate in there replaced. So uh, his his surgery was much more involved than mine. And I was fortunate I found a, uh, a surgeon there that does minimally invasive surgery, so uh, he doesn't cut the muscles. Uh, he does it arth- arthroscopically and pulls the muscles apart, so hopefully the rehab is about half the time. So instead of having four to six months rehab, I'm hoping to have two to three months rehab.
4: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Beautiful. And so the goal is, since your your surgery was uh, half as invasive as Tiger's, you should be... Uh a better golfer because of that. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: I'll, I'll hit it further than him when I get done. There <laughs> Here we go. There we go.
2: So uh, um, just to give everybody a little bit of a background of of you, um, why don't you kind of tell us how you got in the golf business this and uh, how it kind of transformed your life.
3: When I was in high school, my uh, dad and mom uh, bought an old property, which used to be called St. Charles Country Club. Uh, it had. Uh, they were in operation from 1926, where my dad caddied until 1942 in the war, when uh, they couldn't afford the lease payment to the farmer and his son who owned the property and uh, and maintained it for them. So uh, my dad purchased the property uh, in the spring of '61, and we started working on the old building that was there that was built in 1926. But he wasn't able to get uh, the uh, golf course property until September 1st because the farmer had some crops on it and wanted to make sure they got harvested. So we took possession in the fall of 61 and uh, opened in the spring of uh, 1962. Actually, I think it was Memorial Day. And uh, uh, we had a nine-hole public golf course.
5: Uh,
3: (laughs) I'm not going to say it was the uh, best in the country, but but it was uh, suitable. So right. uh, we were able to, uh, uh, we started doing pretty well. And uh, in 64, uh, my dad uh, took some investors in, sold some stock to put back into the club and the golf course. And in 72, uh, we were doing off very well with business mainly out of North St. Louis that we constructed another nine and went to 18 holes in 72. When I came out of the service in 73, uh, I began working in the golf shop. Uh I always had a love for the golf course operations, but uh I didn't see as big a future in there as I did uh being in the golf shop. And then in right. 1977 uh, I became uh started my apprenticeship to become a PGA member and uh got uh got that in 1978. Uh sure. so we were doing we were doing pretty good and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed playing golf, and I also enjoyed, in the the PGA, being able to take members to uh, pro-ams and uh, play in the section events. In
1: 1980,
3: I convinced our board of directors at the time that we should, I think, take the possibility of going private because we were having so much play that it was definitely hard to maintain the golf course in the conditions that I wanted it to be in. So the club went private in 1980. Uh, we took a number of members in, and uh, it became very successful, again, primarily with people out of coming out of North County. And a lot of people were coming out of North County because St. Charles was growing so rapidly that uh, the parents decided to follow the children huh. from North hmm. County uh, into St. Charles. Uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, I kind of wanted to do more than just uh, – stand behind a counter and uh, sell golf balls and golf clubs and uh, give lessons. And so I decided to form a golf management company and uh, got it with a developer and a couple of developers, actually. And uh, we started Whitmore Country Club uh, in the mid-'80s. So uh, that was a lifelong dream to be able to put a whole golf course together. Right. And uh, then we had the opportunity to uh, team up with the University of Missouri and begin the Missouri Bluffs. And at uh, that time, I formed the management company and brought in Jeff Smith and uh, Lucy Mitchell, who is now Hughes. And uh, we started a management company and, and ended up uh, to about 10 courses uh, in the time that I had it. And in 2009, I sold it to two, those two employees and kept an interest in Gateway, and I kept my interest in Bogey Hills, and we subsequently sold Gateway just recently. So my main uh, – right now my main part of the business is operating Bogey Hills,
5: mm-hmm.
3: and I've turned it over to my daughter as the general manager, and then obviously, right. as you know, you're the director of instruction there. Right. So uh, I come in and uh, tell you how to give lessons. No, That's I right. <laughs> I, tell, I tell Angel what, who to hire and fire. No, I don't. That's do that. Right. But uh, it's a good uh, good operation. Uh, unfortunately, we had a fire in 2017 right. and it burned the building basically to the ground. And we've re- rebuilt, and uh, the new clubhouse is fabulous. and That's as right. So we have two golf simulators in the building, so mm-hmm. can be done all the time. And uh, we have. Uh, simulators that can be used for some leagues and uh, uh fittings and everything so that's very right. well so uh, that uh, little three-minute speech which took 10 uh is how <laughs> I, how I
2: got. that's right um just to give everybody a little bit of an idea of really who you are because we do have uh listeners from from all over the country we got some people in california um chicago illinois down in fort myers kind of where you are um so, just to give a little uh, early insight, you were uh, on the PGA Board of Directors, is that correct?
3: Yes, uh, I was the Gateway PGA president in 80 uh, and 81, and uh, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, run for a vice president position for the uh, national organization, and uh, I won that election and became uh, on the National Board of Directors from 83, 84, and 85. And mm-hmm. actually, was on the board that put our initials on PGA West out in uh, Palm Springs, California. Yeah. Uh, I also was fortunate enough to be at uh, three PGA championships and two PGA Ryder Cups. Uh, I uh, served on the rules committee at uh,
2: for both a
3: Ryder Cup and a PGA Championship.
2: That's awesome. So, uh, yeah. so
3: that was uh, that was the highlight of my career. Got to travel yeah. quite a bit. Uh, so
2: it was uh, it was a lot of work, but a lot of fun. Right. And uh, do you have anything that would be memorable from when you were on that uh, rules committee, either from that Ryder Cup or from uh PJ Championship? Because, you know, we don't get to speak to people very often, or our listeners don't get to hear from, like, basically inside the ropes, uh, from not the player's perspective, but from more of... The running a tournament perspective, mm-hmm. especially that size.
3: Well, one that there was a, quite a few. Uh, one that stands out in my mind was uh, I was a rules official uh, for a match uh, and uh, at PGA National in Palm Palm Springs. No, no, Palm. Uh,
2: West Palm Beach.
3: West Palm Beach, Florida. Yeah. Correct. Thank you. You're and welcome. I got a match with uh, uh, Ian Woodsman and Curtis Strange. And on the ninth hole, uh, uh, Ian Woosman hit it to the right, and Curtis Strange hit it to the left. And that fairway at that time had a pretty good fall off, and there uh-huh. was uh, quite a bit of these uh, red ants uh, mounds around, and you would get relief for those. So uh, Curtis Strange called me over and wanted a relief from uh, one of these uh, uh, mounds uh, that was the red ants were in. And uh, so I'm over there looking, and all of a sudden across the fairway, here comes. Ian Woosman at full full speed running right after us,
5: <laughs> so he just went
3: over there to see what the ruling is going to be. So I I correctly uh, asked Curtis Strange to take a stance and position of how he was going to hit the shot, and and he did, and uh, and uh, he didn't the molehill or the ant hill didn't interfere with his swing, so uh-huh. I would not give him relief, uh, which was uh, uh, made uh, Ian Woosman very happy. Uh, and Curtis accepted it uh, as the right ruling, and uh, he was a gentleman about it. So that kind of uh, is one that uh, that uh, I remember. Uh, mm-hmm. One time over in uh, England at the Belfry, I remember uh, I was a an observer. Uh, I was not the official rules guy, but the English people English guy was, and so I remember that uh, on one hole, uh, uh, Ray Floyd hit it to the left. And they hit it into a water, and it had a big slope on it. And uh, at the top of the hill, and then and then he dropped his ball, and he didn't get full relief. He had to would have to stand on the side of the hill. So mm-hmm. he he was requesting, well wait a minute, I should get to redrop that. And the uh, British rules official told him correctly that no, uh, that's mm-hmm. not the way it is. You dropped the ball. You didn't take advantage of what you should have, and you have to play it. Right. He, looked, he looked for me for some uh, advice, and I said, "I'm sorry, Mr. Floyd, but this gentleman is correct." Yeah, <laughs> uh, 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 and Ray didn't like that. I'll tell you. So now, uh,
2: when, when when you uh, when you go over there, I guess the royal Nation rules are in effect over there. And then I guess I guess you were just kind of like this the kind of just. Supervising basically the rules so if uh, one of our guys had a question you could answer it But ultimately they had the rules would that be kind of like how it is when it's over yeah. here when,
3: when they're when uh, the played in the United States the uh, The, the uh, PGA of America operates all the rules officials and they have uh, they uh, The British people put in observers who go along with the group to uh, help the rules official which is uh, an American when it's played uh, I mean, over in England, then it's the exact opposite. The British take control as the rules official and we act mm-hmm. as observers to huh. uh, help them. So
2: I did not know that. How that's how it's done. I did not know that. And then uh, so fast forward to the Missouri Bluffs and uh for some of our listeners when, when the Missouri Bluffs was, was built in nineteen ninety five, I believe, um it was the first uh high end public golf course in Saint Louis, Missouri at that at that time. And uh I always enjoy this story. How was the Missouri Bluffs thought where where did the thought of Missouri Bluffs come about and where was it actually written on?
3: Well, the ground was uh, owned by the uh University of Missouri uh in, in the forties. Uh it was a uh uh an, a uh a place where they were mining uh, uh, making uh, uranium for uh for uh the war okay. they 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 the government confiscated the ground from all of the farmers and huh. uh, when that was over then uh, they turned the ground over to the University of Missouri with the intentions of having a research park right. now, the, sure. which they did create and the research park actually uh was never part of the uh, comic uh, thing at all. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was virgin ground and uh, they decided to do this, but they, they set aside 235 acres of ground, which uh, they would, had some thought of maybe potentially one day making a golf course. So uh, a guy by the name of Rick Sinhold, who was in charge of the, of the, of the uh, research part, uh, put out a request for a proposal and uh, it's a pretty long story, but in the end, uh, we ended up getting that request for proposal and then went ahead and uh, built the golf course in conjunction with Tom Fazio. So it was the hmm. only Tom Fazio golf course in the St. Louis metropolitan market. And uh, my, my goal at that time was uh, because there was no really high-end golf course uh, in St. Louis, that was my goal was to build a high high-end golf course. So uh, we sodded almost the whole golf course and had a preview day uh, in the fall before we were going to open in May one of the following year. And uh, we had 24 golf carts we rented so to be able to take a tour. And I think you were involved with that. I with was. And a lot of other people. And uh, we we probably had over 8,000 people over three days come through there. It
2: was insane. Uh,
3: just just for the preview. So. We felt we had something going at that time, and uh, I wanted to create some interest uh, in the social area. So we announced that we were going to have $100 greens fees, which doubled the greens fee of anybody in the market. So uh, uh, everybody (laughs) thought I was crazy, and I probably Mm. am. (laughs) But uh, that was the uh, hitch that we had to uh, get people out there. So uh, it's been a successful golf course. Uh, we don't manage it anymore, and uh, right. so uh, I, I can't comment on the, the conditions of it today or what's happened, but uh, right. it's a
2: spectacular layout. It was. Yeah. It was. And um, just to kind of give everybody a little bit of a info on uh, Mr. Walters here, my father, um, he is in the Gateway PGA Hall of Fame. He is also uh, – he just got inducted, I believe, was it last year, to the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame and um uh, some people might not realize but i I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but i you were known for and i believe gave speeches about case of play is that correct
3: yes uh there was a uh a group called the Crittenden group that used to have seminars uh in the in the winter or fall, early spring or late fall area and uh Jeff Smith and I participated in uh, three of those uh, seminars and uh, gave uh, ours, what we talked about was uh, speed of play. And right. so uh, uh, I always held that uh, uh, you you have to base your tee time interval on the time it takes to place the first par three. Uh, because if you take it less than that, uh, you, you build up an automatic uh, backup. So let's just take an example that if you, you feel like the first par three, which is the third hole, is a 10-minute hole, then and you use eight-minute tee times, uh, you've created a uh, you know a backup before anybody's ever started. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. uh So uh, I know that originally when the GPSs came out, you know part of selling that was well you can increase your you can lower your your intervals because we can make everybody play faster. But they can't make them play faster if it takes ten minutes on average to play a par three. Right. And they were creating. Right. We were. They were creating a backup, and uh, we never really wanted to try to to do that. Uh, we always wanted to try to make golf a great experience, and a great experience is not playing five or six hour rounds. A great right. experience, in our and our and my plan of thought is to be able to play in four or four and a half, depending on the golf course. It's right. An easy golf course to play. You should be able to play in four hours. If you're if you're going to go play Pebble Beach, uh, it's not a four hour <laughs> golf course. Right. right. So you have to kind of right. you know dictate it on how many uh, hazards you have, how long the golf course is, how high mm-hmm. is the rough, how fast are the greens. So there's a, a lot of variables that you uh, you have uh, trying to determine the pace of play.
2: Right. You know, and it doesn't help when courses don't kind of go along that route of uh maintaining their 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 gapping. So like when they when the first group tees off and learning to maintain that instead of just trying to pack 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 and not right. maintain that, that's when you start seeing severe backups because now you're instead of teeing one group off and let's just use the ten minutes, now you're trying you're trying to tee off two groups in 10 minutes, and right. that's five-minute intervals, and that's just going to totally backlog your golf course and then sure. Sure. turns into a Well, bad experience. I've always
3: maintained that, uh, you know, uh, in an 18 hole golf course uh, average time, you know, you're going to get it between about 200, 220, maybe 230 uh, players, and there were guys trying to play 300 rounds, and, uh, you know, if you, if you do, if you put it on paper, you'd be starting at, first tee time would be six in the morning and the last tee time would be at five o'clock in the afternoon.
5: Right, right. right. So then
3: on that, it just, it just doesn't work if you have that area. So uh, right. a lot of golf course uh, owners, operators, management companies have always had to tend to, I think, uh, overestimate
2: how many players they have. Right. 100%. Yeah. And then um, just kind of, Going into, uh, I want to talk a little bit about architecture with you because you've seen so many different versions of architecture in your in your golfing uh, career and built some uh, as well. So, you know, as we're seeing these guys hit it farther and farther, the tendency now, which is kind of mind-boggling to me, is that these architects are making everything wider and wider, and it's kind of taken away the aspect of the game, which I think is the most important, is accuracy. It's more about how far can you hit it. And eventually, as Dad, I think you would agree, we're going to run out of real estate if they keep going down this route. Would you agree? Well, it's uh,
3: it's very difficult to uh, control the uh, – we don't have any controls on the golf club. I mean, we have some, and uh, the, the manufacturers push these to the limit. And and also uh, the golfers today themselves are in much better shape than than anybody ever used to be. You know they work out, they have trainers, uh, so they're stronger, and uh, and that makes a difference. But you know you run you run the peaks and valleys, and uh, you know there for a while the uh, the peak was was accuracy and uh, keep it tight, and that's the way almost all the old golf courses were built because. Uh, golf courses, uh, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, even into the 50s, uh, you know, 225 or 240 was considered an average length. You know, mm-hmm. now, uh, now you probably have 15 or 20 guys on the PGA Tour who average over 300. So, right. Uh, yeah. Certain it certainly makes a difference uh, to the golf course. So, and I think it's going to start to trend maybe now a little bit the other way. Uh, however, uh, you know, young guys like to hit it a long way,
5: right? <laughs> but they also
3: like to find it, right. right? So if it's not really wide and you hit it a long way, you're, you're going to have a lot of trouble. So right. I, I think there's a mix. I, I'm not particularly uh, fond of uh, putting uh, limits uh, on the ball or even the clubs. Uh, I think that if they do, they're going to have some, they're going to have some really pushback from the manufacturers. I mean these manufacturers are always pushing something new every year that hits the ball further. Right. There's a limit on that. uh, They're not going to be able to do that. So now instead of having new equipment come out every year, it's going to be the same equipment and uh, hurt their bottom line, which hurts sales, uh, which hurts everybody. So I I don't know. It's a very, very complicated issue and there is no easy answer. I don't Mm -hmm.
4: don't think there's even a right answer. Correct. Yeah. Well, you're probably
3: right. Right, right.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the talk, kind of along the same lines of the bifurcation of the, I mean, professional game having a separate set of rules and standards as um, the amateur game?
3: Well, I would be uh, personally in favor of that. Uh, I, I'm afraid if we set limits on uh, golf balls and clubs and whatever, the uh, the true amateur uh, needs all the help he can get. Uh, Agreed. the uh, the, uh, the the professional is a different animal and uh, so i wouldn't be opposed to having a uh, a tour ball if that's what you want to call it mm-hmm. it's similar to a limited light ball that that is done at a lot of ranges around the country uh so it wouldn't bother me to have that done uh I, and i think that that's a that's a good uh, good choice mm.
2: interesting and um Kind of segueing into something a little bit different, as as now most of the country understands, I would say almost all golfing people, um, the new World Golf Handicap is now uh, live. Uh, We're getting ready to go live here, I think, in the next couple weeks. Um, But what are your thoughts on that new handicap, World Handicap?
3: I'm probably for it. I, I'm not 100% sure they, they've they thought it through the way they should have. Uh, but, you know, I think it's it's important because now there is a lot more international golf. Uh, there's uh, pro-ams all around the country. There's international people that come and play in pro-ams here. And, uh, unfortunately, the uh, in most of those, uh, because every a lot of countries had their own handicapping system, Uh, which was completely different than ours, Uh, it usually worked out where the international handicap could be two, three, or four shots higher than the American handicap.
5: Hmm. So that uh,
3: if you played in a pro-am that had international players and they brought their handicap, you were normally at a three- or four-shot disadvantage. Hmm. So I I understand the reason to put it together. I'm not sure that they've, uh, they've got it all. Quite right yet. And I think right. I, I would expect to see some changes in the next few years as they have to uh, massage this. But that's not unusual. Anything that comes out that's real new uh, sometimes needs some massaging. Oh,
5: uh, yeah. The
3: yeah. point for me to say is uh, the drop rule now. Uh, right. I've, I've had back troubles, but I can't hardly drop the ball from my knee. I can't right. bend mm. over like that to be able to drop the ball. So it, it doesn't really—it's it's an awkward position to be in, and uh, I, I think they had to have it uh, accommodated because the, the USGA and R&A couldn't agree, and this was kind of a uh, uh, a way that they could uh Middle what they each had. Yeah. So, but I think uh, I think it's uh, okay. I, I know they tried to do some of the speed of play. Uh, I know that the USGA never thought that. Uh, that the new change in the rules would have guys like Bryson DeChambeau, you know, putting with the flagstick in.
4: Right. early
3: for an amateur thing, for speed up a play. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not going about the World Golf Handicap. That's talking about the
4: rules. Right. But I think both of those will need a little bit of massaging to get yeah. it correct. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, I think it's all kind of in the same conversation, like how you were going with it. The, the pace of play, you know, myself being somebody who – plays predominantly on public golf courses. Uh play plays horrible out there and it's not just the pro game. Uh it I mean, if I play a public round of golf and I get done in five hours, oh, I'm shocked. And you know, it's that's just it it takes so long to play a round of golf. Um have had that issue anytime I've played here at Bogey, but um definitely have had that issue every time, almost every time that I play a public round of golf. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I I think that gets back to the tee time interval, right? Uh, you know, uh, if you you know, in my opinion, you, you you should be nine to ten minutes should be the tee time interval, and uh, most places are trying to do eight, and it's just puts mm-hmm. too many people on the golf course. Uh, if you look at it uh, the same way with a shotgun start, an ideal shotgun start for eighteen holes, you should have no more than twenty six or twenty seven groups on the course and uh, and when they put 32 to 36 to 40 uh there's just too many groups out there to be able to maintain the pace of play uh-huh. so but it's it's hard when you uh you're operating a golf course and you have an owner and right now being an owner of a golf course is uh, in not a good position uh-huh. so you're looking to raise as much revenue as you can so the more players you can get out there the uh the better you do however it really hurts the experience, and uh, if you hurt the experience enough, uh, I think people try to find other other golf courses to play.
4: For sure.
2: So Sharon had a question about the World Handicap uh, System, and she was wondering how it would affect a typical golf club member. So I guess it's kind of geared towards more private members or, or members at private clubs. Do you think it's going to really affect that world uh, – Are there handicaps or how they're going to play?
3: Well, I think most handicaps will go down. Um, I I think they could go down as much as two strokes Uh because they're now using the par as a – and I think that's not right, but they're using a par as part of the uh, equation to figure your handicap. So it used to be before based solely uh, on the – Course rating and uh, uh, where it would be. So, let's just take a course that has a course rating of 68, and now the par and the par is 71. They Uh use 71 as the guide uh, much more than they do the 68. So, there's three strokes difference between 68 and 71. So, you're going to see your handicap go down.
2: Right, I I would agree, and uh, I think overall. I think it should help with uh, some things in the sense of now that it's being updated daily and not uh, on the 15th or 14th of every month. Now it's it's kind of getting they'll get people to just put in their scores immediately instead of holding on to them and well, that's that's essentially adjusting the score.
3: Yeah, that's the hope. Uh, The problem is I don't think that they uh,
2: you could hold
3: on to them for three, four, five, six days and then put them in. So uh, yeah. It's a little bit of a, of a of a problem, and then also the other part of the problem is if you're gonna have a tournament uh you almost have to set the deadline for the handicap two three days in advance to yeah. be able to make your pairings and make it work because right. side, you'd have to wait till let's say you had a tournament on Saturday and Sunday, you'd have to wait till midnight on Friday to get the current handicap and then make the pairings, which is very difficult to do. So uh, right. that'll be a little bit of an issue with them too. So, and then I think it's also a little controversial where uh, they're going to adjust your handicap if they if it's considered to be a difficult day of playing. And my understanding is the way they're going to do that is they're going to look at all the scores for the day. So huh. if they see every all the scores for the day two points two strokes higher than uh, the, the the average they're going to reduce your score two strokes.
2: Hmm. Huh. Interesting. So uh, well, that's, that's interesting. a little
3: controversial too.
2: Well, yeah, it is a little so, controversial.
3: Yeah, so it it, I mean, it could depend on the weather. It could depend on whether it's rained. It could depend on whether it's real cold. Uh,
2: yeah.
3: You know, there's a lot of uh, – they're, they're not saying what they are. They're going to take a consensus
2: of all the scores for the day. Yeah, interesting. This is interesting. Uh, Tim from St. Louis had a question. Um, and we kind of touched base about the USGA distance study and all that stuff, but I want to get to the second uh, clarifying question that he had because uh, I think it's really more important than the original question is, uh, you know, he's saying, you know, people are struggling with distance, but the issue is, and this also kind of ties into pace of play, is uh, people not playing the right teats. Uh, well, what are that's, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, that's very important. Uh, you know, we have to check our ego uh, in the mm. pro shop. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, because uh, you know the game is you want to enjoy the game, and and you should be able to enjoy the game so that you can hit a variety of clubs, and and not have to on every par four or eighty percent of the par four hit your three wood. Uh, right, so that's that. That's if you're you're playing the wrong tees. Right, so you need to be able to move it forward. Uh, I, I found even myself, uh, you know, at one time I, I would historically play the back tees and now I'm, I'm up to what I would call the gold tees, which is probably one, which is about 55 to 5,800 yards so that I can still hit wedges into some, because I'm not hitting it much more than 200 yards. So, uh, you know, I don't have any chance to get to any par five. Right. and I, if it, if, the, if the par four is over 400 yards, I don't have any chance to get to there. So, right. uh, you know, I think you've got to be able to play up your ego in the pro shop and uh, be happy with your score when you finish.
2: Right. And the problem, too, is that, you know, and we kind of faced this a little bit at our club at Bogey, but I know it's, you know, probably worldwide, is that, you know, we, we say, hey, based on your handicap you should be playing these tees, or, you know, you should play these tees, or, you know, and I, I yeah, wish there'd be would... a way to kind of say, hey, this is how far you hit it. This is your handicap. These are the tees you need to play. This is the tees you have almost to play. And to play almost teams. force them to get there so they can stop checking because they're going to immediately lose or drop their scores uh, just by t- switching T boxes. Would you agree with that?
3: I I don't think it's as much based on handicap as I think it's based on how far you can hit it. Right. Uh, to be honest with you, because uh, I know some guys that are 25 handicappers that hit it 250 yards. Right. Now, but their handicap is 25. Now that's right. because they spread all over the lot, so they <laughs> right. don't have the issue. They don't have the issue. They they need uh, to come and see you and take. Right. The <laughs> Uh, but I, I much have more empathy for the guy who, who and probably it's more the senior golfer uh, who's just now lost his distance and probably at one time did hit it 225,
2: 230. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and most players think they hit it further than they actually do. Yeah. right. Uh, but uh, I think that's where they, if we base it on distance, of how far you hit the ball. And uh, I think that's
2: the best way to do it. To be yeah, yeah, I would agree with you on that um so before we wrap up our our interview here i want i want to know what you think or uh what your biggest accomplishment in golf is and i know you have a lot um which uh, i'll kind of get into with my listeners but um what do you think your your biggest accomplishment is
3: well i you know there's a lot of things that you could point to mm-hmm. uh but in my opinion i, I was I'm most proud of the fact that uh you know when I when we were running the management company or I was running the man, we were, whoever was involved didn't make any difference is that we were able to add courses and and we we got up to probably between all the employees we probably got up to 2000 employees uh, yeah. over period with having 10 or 12 golf courses and private country clubs and Amazing. Uh, you know mm-hmm. we provided a uh I think in almost all instances, a fairly living wage. And uh, that's what I was probably proud of the most that, uh, you know, having great employees and, and teaching great employees and uh, being involved with them. So I think that was probably the, the best accomplishment I think I could have.
2: Well, that that, that is uh, definitely an awesome accomplishment. And uh, the St. Louis area definitely thanks everything that you've done for uh, golf in St. Louis. Uh, you did most definitely transform uh, what golf was and meant to the uh, whole metropolitan area, and you really did uh, make a huge difference and put St. Louis on the map for for golf courses. So we definitely thank you for that, um, and uh, we thank you well, again for uh, coming on well, and, and, and listening to us. Well said, son. Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> Hope I got some points on that one. Yeah, um, <laughs> but once again, thank you again, uh, Dad and um, Dennis Walters, uh, for taking your time down in Florida and, and interviewing with us. And uh, I'll see you uh, when you get home. Okay, you guys
3: have a great time. All
2: right, Looking have a good one.
3: Looking you in about a month. All, All right,
2: fine.
3: take care. All right. All
2: right.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was the interview of uh, Mr. Walters. Uh, what did you think about the interview, David?
1: Uh, like I said, uh, he's – he's been in the business for a very long time he has been around the block he's seen a lot of things um but it's definitely not this kind of this old rigid uh thought process like, he's very understanding of how the game is changing how business is changing and and i think he's got a very modern look to the game currently and how it can benefit the game moving forward
0: right and uh and that's how I think, uh, in all walks of life, I think that's how you become successful. Mm-hmm. You can't stay stagnant. You can't stay uh, on your heels. you got to always move forward and change with the times. Correct. And if you don't do that, then you get left behind. A hundred percent. So I thought it was an amazing interview. Uh, obviously, I know a lot of things about Mr. Walters because well, he is of course. my father. Well, of course. But it's always, oh, it's always really neat to... To understand or even rehear some of the things that he's experienced, right. and right. you know, not understanding or what a lot of people don't understand is that he is was the vice president of the PGA of America. He is a PGA life member. Uh, he's done so much for the game, even in a national sense, and uh, it's just really it's really special to be a part of. Right, uh, I appreciate him. So we're heading. I'm heading to uh, Palm Springs, California. There you go. I know there are some listeners out in California, so uh, I'll be out in your your neck of the woods. If I might be a little bit south of you, but uh, I'm definitely heading out there. We're playing uh, four days, uh, four rounds of golf. So we're we're actually going to be playing at PJ West and another golf course. So uh, I'll give you my little insights on those. I have played those in the past, so I'm looking forward to getting back out there, man.
1: There you go. I get the run of the place when
0: you're gone, right?
1: yeah we'll talk about
0: it we'll talk about that (laughs) maybe maybe but until then uh everybody have a great week and uh we will see you uh next week hope you guys enjoyed this podcast have a good one